Welcome to Let It Lopate at Large. I'm Let It Lopate. In early 2018, around the first anniversary of President Trump's inauguration, David Frum published Trumpocracy, a critical look at the president and his party that, in Mr. Frum's view, had launched an assault against American democracy by forging a new U.S. regime type, one that challenged long-established political norms and mixed government, family, and business quote, in the style of authoritarian third world kleptocrats. And now Mr. Frum, a former speechwriter and special assistant to George W. Bush and currently a senior editor at The Atlantic and a regular analyst on MSNBC, has published a sequel called Trumpocalypse that uh, he proposes as a guide to protecting the American constitutional system from Trump and after Trump. It's published by Harper and it brings David Frum to our show. Welcome. Hey, thank you so much. You could have known so enthusiastically. It's a, it's a terrible day. Uh-huh. Yes. So well, we, we have a lot of terrible things to talk about. But you couldn't have known when you were writing this book that by the time it was published, the coronavirus would claim over a hundred thousand American lives, which gives uh, an even more ominous meaning to its title. But you were able to discuss the pandemic briefly in the opening pages of the book. I was expecting bad news for 2020 when I wrote the book. Um, I was anticipating a recession uh, caused by the trade war um, that President Trump had started. And I, I was worried we were going to blunder into some kind of foreign policy crisis, maybe with Iran, probably with Iran. Um, Harper very impressively held the book back just long enough to allow me to write um, a new first chapter about the pandemic. Um, but because the book is mostly forward looking, um, it's I, I I wasn't very much knocked off stride because I knew something bad was coming. I anticipated that Donald Trump would likely lose the 2020 election. And the question for the book is what comes next? You know um, how the president played down the threat of the coronavirus and squandered critical time during the early days of the crisis and typically deflected accountability. Uh, Considering all the other things you're criticizing here, should we be surprised? Well, um, I think we should be surprised in this way. Um, a, A pandemic as we've seen with leaders around the world, as we've seen with governors in the United States, it's really hard to do a very, very good job during a pandemic. The situation is so unpredictable. Um, You know, there's just a limit to what you can do. So even, um, and publics understand that, but it's not hard to do an adequate job. Uh, So you can, you can, once you, once the thing strikes, if you listen to scientific advice, if you show concern and care for the people who are sick, um, if you make it your highest priority uh, to um, protect and, and uh, honor the people who are on the front line of providing care, you can do a good enough job. And governments of all different points of view have done uh, a good enough job. I, I'm originally from, from Canada. The province of Ontario right now, the equivalent of the uh, governor, the premier of the province, is a very Trump-like figure, very populous, very blustery. Uh, when the, the coronavirus struck the province of Ontario, he said, turned to the province's chief medical officer and said, I'll follow your lead. What do I do? And then he would have press conferences and he would always begin with words about the doctors, words about the sick. Not hard to do an adequate job. And Trump couldn't. When he was asked last March about delays in coronavirus testing, he said, I don't take responsibility at all. And you say, that will double as history's epitaph on his presidency. Right. Well, th- there's so much there that is sort of indicative that he doesn't take responsibility. Um, I mean, it's just what 
the, the thing about the presidency, as we all know, it's you're responsible. Um, you're responsible for uh, the luck uh, and the unluck, for the success and the non-success. That's why, look, that's why they age so fast. You know, one of the toughest decisions President Obama ever had to make was when the, the, the United States launched the raid on um, to assassinate bin Laden in 2011. There was a question, take one helicopter or take two helicopters. And easy decision, the reason it's a hard decision, it's a hard decision, that's why the president gets it. If you take one, there's a better chance of stealth. Uh, but if anything goes wrong, you're trapped. If you take two, you have a better chance of getting away, but you put at risk your stealth because two helicopters are noisier than one. And President Obama had to weigh that decision. and. Who knew what was the right answer? And it, and both answers looked pretty good or pretty bad. He chose two, and as it happened, one of the helicopters did fail, and the mission was a success because of that. Had he chosen one and the mission been a failure, that would have been just as smart a decision, just as reasonable, but the failure would have been on him. That's the way the presidency works. Now, the big story over the past few days has been the protests following the police killing of George Floyd. The Huffington Post reported on Saturday that the Justice Department under Jeff Sessions and William Barr has killed police reform programs that could have helped Minneapolis. And then, of course, uh, the president has said all sorts of things that people have considered rather inflammatory. Uh, yeah. But, I, 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 I'm know, not sure I always understand. Doesn't he have advisors who say you shouldn't really say Things like that. He he may um, the Trump presidency. I, I wrote a piece in uh, at, at the beginning of January of 2017 uh, that asked the question: Should I had friends who were thinking about this at the time? Should I serve in the Trump administration? And uh, I understand why good people think they can do good work uh, even under a bad president. Uh, but I by end of the piece by saying, look, if President Trump were as sure as you that you would do the right thing, he wouldn't have offered you the job in the first place. And so this administration is staffed by people who are crooked, by people who are fanatical, and by people who are incompetent. And some people are two of those three things. <laughs> um, um, there, are, there, are, and there are people who are competent, but they tend to also be crooked. There are people who are um, honest, but they tend not to be very competent. And, uh, and they tend to be quite fanatical. And so he's, he's built a White House in his own image. And of course it fails. Are any of your colleagues surprised that you, a well-known political conservative and the man who's credited with coming up with one of George W. Bush's favorite phrases, axis of evil, would be this critical of a president who's supported by a majority of people on the right? Well, just let me take about that, before speaking about myself, let me take a closer look at what you just said there about the majority of the people on the right. Donald Trump often tweets out that he's got this, some amazing approval in the Republican Party. It's worth remembering that, and it's true, his numbers are usually not true, but it is true that he is more popular among Republicans than, say, Ronald Reagan was. It's also true that when Ronald Reagan was president, a third of America identified as Republican. And today, about one-fifth of America identifies as Republican. So the Trump formula has been to make himself more and more popular inside the Republican Party by shrinking the party. Uh, so uh, it's not much of an accomplishment. Fractions here are our friend, and I think everyone understands uh, that if you have all, if you have ninety percent of twenty percent, that's not as good as having eighty percent of thirty-three uh, percent. As ahead. for me, as for me, look, I've been um, 
a voice inside my party for a while about the need to bring the Republican Party into the modern era. And I was a voice during uh, the campaign of 2016 that Trump was not only a calamitous figure, but also a criminal, um, and that nothing good would happen. And I, th I think the surprise here is I have so many friends who said the same thing in 2016, who then changed their tune in 2017. And I think it's not me who needs to explain myself. My path is obvious. They need to explain themselves. Do you think that being a Canadian American gives you a perspective that some others might not have? For sure. I think that is very much true. I think one, I, there are things, when I look back, things I take from Canada. Um, uh, the first is just the experience of seeing two very similar societies, the United States and Canada, achieving such different results because of their system of government, uh, always makes me think people have all these big explanations for why um, America is the way it is, you know, deep things in American culture and it's about the West and so on. And I'm always mindful to say, you know, it's, it's the political system that you have to look at first. Uh, if, if the United States were governed in the same way as Canada, right now the government would be headed by Prime Minister Nancy Pelosi. Um, it, uh, so changes in institutions lead to big differences in outcomes. So that's one thing you learn. I, I think what I've also learned from the Canadian experience is I grew up under the protection of the American security system. I, um, I grew up in a country who, that prospered because it could participate in the US-led world free trade system. Uh, those are things I cherish. They were part of my life before I could even remember that my life was forming. And Donald Trump has jeopardized them, and they are precious to me. You write that it's much more likely that George W. Bush and Barack Obama will vote for the same candidates in 2020 than it is that George W. Bush and Donald Trump will vote for the same candidate. So there, you're also saying that there's been a lot of defections, and we, we know all about uh, some of them. Uh, they're, the president uh, may like to compare himself to Abraham Lincoln, but uh, and the GOP, well, we'll get to where the GOP has been going, but there are you're not alone in being yeah. critical of, uh, of the president. A lot of uh, people who have been uh, called uh, never Trumpers, although the president has other names for them, uh, are, yeah. are now even discussing the possibility of having an alternate convention. Well, look, since in the 21st century, here are the people the Republican Party has nominated for president, George W. Bush, John McCain, Mitt Romney, and Donald Trump. Of those four men, the most recent, Mitt Romney, voted to remove Donald Trump from the presidency for corruption. John McCain, the second most recent, refused to let Donald Trump attend his funeral. <laughs> The president of the United States. And George W. Bush has been a little bit more uh, discreet, but I think history will be quoting his verdict on the presidency of Donald Trump uh, as much as anybody else's. Remember when he turned on inauguration day and turned to Michelle Obama and said, that was some crazy shit. Um, <laughs> that will be the Trump years in the Oxford history of America. That was some crazy shit. <laughs> but you also argue that, to, by the way, you can't use that word. Uh, the FCC uh, really uh, gives us a hard time. Uh, uh, I was quoting a past president. I, I understand. I understand. <laughs> and, and, and you can't say it on cable when you do it MSNBC, but unfortunately, WBAI is in a different situation. Uh, you argue that to win in the 2020 elections and beyond, progressives need to back moderate candidates who can find common ground with conservative voters. Should they just forget about the issues that are, are most to concern? For them, uh, are you saying that uh, they should reject the 
enthusiasm of the people who supported Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren? Because that, that well, also so could lead a lot of people to decide not to vote at all, which also could lead to a Trump victory. I'm so glad to be asked this question and especially to be asked it in the context of WBAI because I get – this is a thing I think I face a lot in discussions on on Twitter and in other places um, from, as you say, enthusiastic Bernie Sanders supporters. So I, I'm going to give this a – I may take – I'm going to take a minute here to give this a serious answer because I think this is probably one of the things that people who are listening to this program will have uppermost in mind as they listen to you and me talk. Um, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of elections in the United States. I don't even know how many. Um, and it's a gigantic country with a huge economy and 50 state governments. If you are someone who's on the left side of the spectrum, there are a lot of places where you can most profitably get the ball rolling, apply your energies early. Um, you know, that uh, you. Um, you know, state races, congressional races, um, races for governor. Uh, by the way, as people are seeing now, those races, those down ballot races that nobody uh, pays much attention to, things for police commissioner, those things really matter. You want to make a difference from your progressive point of view, fight those races. Um, that's how politics is shaped and changed. Uh, one of the, th the, the problems that I, I don't want to accuse people of this because I'm sure many people are doing this. But one of the biases that social media teaches is because it fixes so much attention on the person of the president that it makes that race, the climactic race, the race at the very apex of this whole vast, complicated, hundreds, thousands of districts political system, it makes that race so much the focus of our attention, especially admittedly when there's a person like Donald Trump in the office. So what I would say to progressives is um, go fight your progressive battles at the state level, in Congress, even at the Senate. Go fight them inside the Democratic Party in nomination races. And, and I'm not you're not I'm not on your side of the argument. I will be uh, battling you. But you know, that's how democracy works. We all have our views. We we um, back our candidates and and we compete by by fair means. Now we're talking about the presidency in a world in which there the options shrink very rapidly. Donald Trump will not be defeated in 2020 because of an upsurge of energy among progressives. Um, that's just not how the race is going to work. And we know that because we know how many progressives there are and we know where they live. And they tend to live in the wrong places to sway this presidential race. Um, you know, it, great. Congratulations. You've turned out lots of people in Brooklyn and the Bay Area and Portland, Oregon and Austin, you know, and um, where you, you, you're already going to win. And you may turn out some in Austin, Texas, where you're not going to win. Uh, the people you need to turn out are the people who are going to flip the industrial Midwest, North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona. And the people there who are going to make the difference, the, the election there is going to be decided by basically three kinds of people. Latino men um, who were Trump did better than uh, might be expected in 2016 among them. Do they fade away from him? Um, it's going to be uh, uh, decided by uh, the energy and activism of a black community. Do they turn out in large numbers? Um, and black voters, although they can be very progressive on economic issues, they do not respond uh, to the whole full spectrum range of cultural issues that makes up urban progressivism. To ge hazard a generalization, obviously, there are a lot of black voters and very, there are many differences. But uh, to... Uh, on block, the voters you need to mobilize, the older people who didn't show up in 2016. Um, and, and then last are the suburban 
women who delivered the House of the Democrats in 2018. So yeah, go be progressive down the ballot. Be as progressive as you want. But understand how this presidential election is going to be decided, where it's going to be decided, and who's going to decide it. My guess on sorry for, Len- sorry for that but long I, answer, but, uh, well, but and, I think and, that's probably issue one on this program. So. Yeah, well, we got a lot of issues I want to address, uh, but I want to tell the audience that my guest is David Frum, whose latest book is Trump Apocalypse, published by Harper's, uh, and this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM. You say that the Democrats should uh, do away when, when they uh, take over with the congressional filibuster confer statehood in Washington, D.C., deter gerrymandering, and pass legislation requiring future presidential candidates to make their tax returns public. That sounds easier said than done. Um, well, I, I'm very focused in this book on things that are, are doable. Um, so you won't hear from me a lot of change comments about the Electoral College, for example. Well, uh, you, but, you don't think we should get rid of the Electoral College. Uh, uh, you're not calling for an can. end to it. I don't think you can. So, like, I don't. I don't. It's not an issue I think about because um, uh, it would need a constitutional amendment, and but, it would but, need but a constitutional. Just, me- let me interject. Republicans have lost the popular vote in six of the seven presidential contests since 1992, but they won the presidency three times. And that's all because yeah. of the electoral college, right? Okay, the Senate is also very unrepresentative, but you're not going to do away with it either. I'm focused in Trumpocalypse. Look, here, here's, I mean, take a step back on, on what shapes my thinking. I'm, I'm a Republican and a conservative, but I think the Republican Party, as now constituted, has gone seriously out of line with the way the country is. And I want to restore functioning representative democracy. So I, I mean, I, I think we need to bring the political system more into line with where the country is. There isn't going to be a big window to do that. I, I think in 2020, the Democrats will win the presidency, and I expect they'll win the Senate too. But the economy is going to be pretty shaky in 2021 and into 2022. I am not so certain that the Democrats will retain Congress in 2022. So if I were a Democrat, uh, I would be banking on a two-year window to achieve the most important structural reforms. And so you need a list of things that can be done that can make a big impact but be passed fast. You can get rid of the filibuster on the first day that the new Senate meets. Bang. There'll be a lot of squawking, but it's done. Once the filibuster is gone, then it takes 50 votes in the Senate to pass legislation, which is the way it should be. And at that point, the Democrats will probably have the vote to confer statehood on the residential areas of the District of Columbia, which means there are now two... Urban, two more urban senators. We've rebound. The Senate looks a little bit more like America. Um, you know, the District of Columbia has more people than Wyoming and Vermont, and very soon we'll have more people than Alaska and North Dakota. Um, it's also much richer than any of those places. So you can do all of that. You can do all of that in a week. Uh, then it's done. Then it's over. Uh, or you can spend years battling over the Electoral College and probably lose. You also advise liberals to stop attacking the fossil fuel industry. Aren't fossil fuels a major cause of, of climate change? How would you like to see climate change dealt with? Uh, I I have a, a long discussion in the book about climate change, but well, that's why I asked the question. Yeah, 
But but to blame the fossil fuels industry, they're just selling you the fuel. You're buying, you know, how is it that the people who are selling the fuel are bad and the people who are buying the fuel are good? Because they, they also they, they because they also bankroll all of the the, the uh, misinformation that uh, def that defends what uh, fossil fuels do, uh, like uh, getting scientists who say that carbon dioxide is good for us. You, um, there is a tendency that often happens on the liberal side of the political debate to. Are you accusing me of being personal. a liberal? No, I'm just. I'm, I, I assume you're putting this up for argument's sake, and I'm. Uh, I'm so I'm taking. I'm making a generalization about this side that you are speaking for in yeah. order to contextualize and of 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 um, moralizing things that are not really moral questions. Of, you know, if if you want to move away from fossil fuels, um, tax them. Uh, and uh, support other kinds of fuels. And I, I talk a lot in the book about the importance of sequestration because I don't think merely reducing uh, carbon output is going to get us to where we need to be in time. I think you're going to have to um, make the investments, especially in nuclear power, that are necessary to generate the electricity, to pull carbon dioxide out of the air, compress it, uh, and then bury it underneath the ground or, or underneath the oceans. Um, th that's the only way we get to where we need to be in time for the 2070s and 2080s. The companies that are going to do that are probably the companies that today are in the fossil fuel business. Um, that And they're, they're neither good nor bad. Uh, they're they're trying to make a living. Uh, and so the, the task of public policy is to set incentives and rules so that they make their living in more socially positive ways. They they uh, they made fossil fuel for a, more than a century, long before we understood its risks. Um, now that we understand its risks, we need to change. But we don't want to say goodbye. I mean, the, the people there, you know, they have all kinds of technical expertise that's that's really necessary. Change their incentives, you'll change their behavior, and they'll be the same people trying to obey the law and serve, make a product that, as they see it, moves cars, moves airplanes, heats homes, um, serves human needs. It's difficult not to wonder why so many voters remain loyal to President Trump, despite the fact that he's caused or exacerbated congressional dysfunction, violated the Constitution's emollients clause, undermined U.S. foreign relations, been caught lying thousands of times, is institutionalized white ethnic chauvinism, promoted the use of dangerous treatments for the coronavirus fired government inspectors general, and I, and I could go on, there are lots more. Why do you think none of those seem, things seem to bother the, his so-called base? Well, we, we don't know that they're not bothered. Um, you know, democracy is a speaking machine that gives us only yes and no answers. It doesn't tell us why. It doesn't tell us how much. Um, it doesn't tell us what alternatives people would like to see. It only answers a yes or no question in a yes or no way. Um, and... Uh, at other moments in history, you know, 1932, nadir of the Great Depression, Americans are literally going hungry. Herbert Hoover still got 38% of the vote um, for all kinds of reasons that we can guess, but we don't know. Uh, people supported his views on prohibition, maybe. Uh, what we know is that Donald Trump is the most unpopular first-term president in the history of polling. He has never once been above 50% in any credible poll. Uh, and he was, even before the uh, coronavirus, already probably on his way to losing the election. And now he's in a lot of trouble. And we should not assume that all the 42% who give him an approval rating count as his base. Um, the, his base is probably smaller. He gets to 42 by adding to his base a lot of people who 
think he's the lesser of two evils. And the way elections are decided is not by making inroads into each candidate's base, but by changing sort of the floating population in between people who are not heavily committed to the political system who have to who have to choose. And Biden is doing very well among those people and certainly much better, it looks like, at least at this point, than Hillary Clinton did in 2016. Now, one of your colleagues at The Atlantic, Adrian LaFrance, has an article on this month's issue about conspiracy theories. And in it, she suggests Trumpism is more like a religious movement than a political movement. And you write that even if Trump loses the election, Trumpism will not be so easily removed from the American national life. So are we yeah. really talking about something quite different than well, we have Adrian had with other presidents? Adrian was there very specifically talking about the QAnon cult that is sort of yes. supports uh, which many uh, people Trump think Trump and, and, many people think Trump is QAnon at least the 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 believers. Yeah, but he would whether he is or not I don't it seems a little complicated for him to think up all by himself yeah. um, and a little more literate and well informed about the workings of the US <laughs> government. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, you know, you know as if Trump isn't even QAnon. Um, uh, but I talk in Trumpocalypse, sorry, Trumpocalypse a lot about how you deal with the social divides and the social contentions that have been such a resource for the Trump presidency. Um, he feeds off many negative energies. And so the book uh, crackles with suggestions as to how you address these divides uh, as a way to get past them. If you don't address the social issues in American society, I think Trump will lose because of the bad economy and the pandemic. But you will not restabilize American democracy in a way that I, for one, and I hope others, would like to see it restabilized. You devoted a chapter to uh, what you call the deep state lie. The president has expressed a hatred for the FBI going back to his first days in, in office. Um, the deep state lie is, an, is a way of excusing his all of the things that he, he does that are unacceptable? Well, Donald Trump invokes the idea of it whenever he's thwarted by like the law. Um, he in, invokes this idea of a deep state as the, the thing that is in his way. Um, now, the term deep state originates in, of all things, uh, political science about the government of Turkey. Uh, so uh, uh, after the First World War, uh, um, Turkey is governed by a general named Kemal Ataturk who decides to secularize the old Ottoman Empire. And he con converts Turkey into more something more like a modern country. He changes the alphabet from Ara Arabic script to uh, Latin script. Um, he gets rid – he reduces dramatically the role of religion. Um, and much of this was quite unpopular with the Turkish people who were very religious. And so uh, he ruled in a very authoritarian way. As he neared his end, he uh, – arranged for the army and the intelligence services to carry on his legacy so that anytime any democratic politician got uh, close to power and began to talk about restoring religion, the army and the intelligence services would strike. They might make a coup or they would in some way or other stop the politician to preserve the secular legacy. And I'm sorry about that long story, but it's sort of the background. Mm -hmm. it, it refers to a secret cabal inside the government that stops the, the people who look like the government, who are passing the laws, from actually governing. Um, and you see similar things happening in Pakistan and in Egypt. And that's an idea that somebody described it to Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon loved it, and he excited, explained it to Donald Trump. And Donald Trump said, aha, whenever I'm thwarted, it's the deep state. But here's the thing. The point of the deep state is those are people who don't have law on their side. Donald Trump um, is the president. There are lots of things he could do. 
uh, to implement the policies he that he he wants, but he doesn't do them. So he wants to be Putin's best buddy. He could. He has lots of – he could waive sanctions. He could uh, invite Putin to the United States. Um, he could pull American forces out of uh, Poland and Romania. He could do lots of things. He doesn't do – he doesn't change. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't change the rules. He doesn't change policy. Instead, he conspires inside the government in an informal way. He's not the proper state thwarted by the deep state. He runs a double policy where he both he both is the formal state where he imposes sanctions on Russia, um, and then he is himself the deep state where he sabotages his own sanctions because he's got a secret purpose he doesn't want to admit. Which is uh, his relationship with Putin, uh, and all of his other nefarious, mysterious relationships, and you know we saw it in, in Ukraine where he you know he, he hates the Ukrainians. Um, and blames them for all kinds of things. And probably Putin is talking in his ear on that. But formally, the, um, he uh, si si signs documents that make us allies or associates with Ukraine. He appoints pro-Ukrainian ambassadors. Uh, he, he approves aid to Ukraine. He, that everything that is a formal part of his office, he initials or signs in a pro-Ukrainian way. And then stealthily, in a way that is outside the realm of his office, he subverts his own policy. And then when he's caught, he blames the deep state, not understanding, no, no, what you're doing is what the deep state does. You could be the formal state, but you refuse to be. I have to take a little break, but uh, we'll be back with more David Frum. This is Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We, we vote him away. tweets tonight in the west wing the self-obsessed wing the liar tweets tonight before we get back to my conversation with david from i need to talk to you about something very important like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been hit particularly hard by the pandemic. A lot of our longtime supporters have been forced by financial constraints to pull their support for the station, which is why we're asking anyone who's able in this time of crisis to please step up and make a contribution of any amount to help keep community radio and London located at large coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And you can do that by calling right now, 516-620-3602, or by going to our website, give2wbai.org. That's give and then the number 2, wbai.org. And one great way to support the station without having to shell out a lot of money all at once is to become a BAI buddy. Uh, there are listeners who, who contribute $10 or more each month, $10, $15, $20, whatever they can afford to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. And joining me now to tell you about a special event that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of our show can attend is my executive producer, Jesse Lent. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Leonard. How are you? 
I'm okay. I'm having a wonderful conversation with with a great guest, and uh, that always makes me feel good. Yes, I think the format. I, I just couldn't help but think, listening to the past half hour of the show, uh, this really shows how different this format of one guest for the hour really is. I'm someone who's heard David from on cable news for years, of course, uh, but never in this context. And uh, it's it's quite a different perspective, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Actually, I think uh, for a little while he was also a commentator on NPR, but that's a whole other story. Anyway, That's true, uh, although he probably didn't just get an hour to go. Though, no, no, he? no, he got minutes. Uh, so so let's get back to uh, the 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 topic at hand. Exactly. Uh, the reason that I am here is to tell our listeners uh if you haven't been tuning in lately about a special event that we're having uh for anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. As Leonard mentioned, a BAI buddy is someone who contributes 10, 20, 30 dollars Anything uh, starting at the $10 mark that you're comfortable with every month uh, in the name of this show, you sign up for that. You'll be uh, invited to attend what we're calling My Dinner for Leonard. That is a teleconference with Leonard and nine other listeners. You'll be able to ask him anything you want or tell him anything you want. And uh, we're wait, just wait, wait, wait. Really I want to about this. I want to point out to people who have heard this over the last week or so. This is the second My Dinner with Leonard. The first one has already been filled. And this and one this is, one is it, starting to fill up as well. We're, we're getting some people in. Now, you know, you may have noticed that we had announced a couple of the names last week. When you sign up to become a BAI buddy, th this is something we haven't told people on the air, at least, Leonard, and this might be a good note to tell people now. Um, when you become a buddy, there will be one question you're asked online, or if you, uh, that's give to WBAI.org, why don't we do that? If you go to give to WBAI.org, there will be a part of the form online where it will ask you if you want us to thank you on the air. If you call 516-620-3602, the uh, operator should ask you, or, or our, our, our rep should, customer service rep should ask you if you'd like to be thanked on the air. This is uh, absolutely fine. If you want to, Leonard, to say your name on the air, we'll do it. But if you want to stay anonymous, that's fine too. The important thing is that you step up. And I also just want to say a big thanks to everyone who already has stepped up in the name of Leonard Lopate uh, in order to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. I'm also looking forward to meeting listeners and uh, getting into a conversation about what we do and what I've done in the past. I've spoken to some pretty famous people over the years. And also um, have you talk about what you think is interesting. Uh, but we can only do it uh, if you support us, whether you do it as a BAI buddy or whether you give us just one um, lump sum right now. Uh, whatever uh, you do, uh, it really helps us keep bringing you these deep dives on conversations that we hope um, will have some relevance to your life. But please make sure that the contribution, uh, that you give the contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And Jesse, anything you want to add before I go back to my guest? Just to, just to expand really briefly on what you just said, because it's a really important point. We're doing this uh, 
you know, di- my dinner with Leonard event. We thought it'd be a fun way for, for you to connect with Leonard and for him to connect with you directly. He's never done this in his 43-year radio career. But that's just one of the ways that you can contribute to the station. There are WBAI face masks. Uh, there are, you can donate $5. You can donate $1. Uh, it all counts. Uh, we don't have corporate underwriting. We have no one picking us up during this crisis. There's no government grants. There's no PPP money. We, are we don't only- take ads. We don't take ads. There's nothing keeping us here except for you, the listeners on the other end uh, of this microphone who are who are supporting us and have supported us and, and have always stepped up since 1959 uh, in this crazy experiment in community radio. So one last time, the number to call 516-620-3602, 516-620-3602, or you can go to the website, give to WBAI.org, that's give, then the number two wbai.org please be sure to make that contribution in the name of leonard lopate at large and from all of us at the show and at the station thanks and thank you jesse uh thank you all who are will be calling in now uh my guest is david from this is leonard lopate at large on wbai new york 99.5 fm uh, david you, you point out that your political swing away from the gop is shared by a number of others uh, the members of the Lincoln Project and the so-called never-Trumpers like you, Max Boot, uh, Rick Wilson, Steve Schmidt, Anna Navarro, George Conway, William Crystal, among others. President Trump recently tweeted that you're all loser types who don't care about 252 new federal judges, two great Supreme Court justices, a rebuilt military, a protected, a protected Second Amendment, biggest ever in caps, tax and regulation cuts, and much more. He called the Lincoln Project a disgrace to Honest Abe. Um, uh, Trumpocalypse is dedicated to the libertarians, conservatives, and Republicans of Never Trump. And I quote uh, an old Methodist hymn, when all were false, I found thee true. Uh, Through the first two years of the Trump administration, uh, we heard from many of our old friends a jibe uh, that Never Trump is not a political party, it's a dinner party. And people then were sometimes unkind enough to add, and they meet for dinner in David Fromm's house. Uh, So, um, which we we did have some people to dinner, but uh, that's not all there was to it. Because what we saw in the elections of 2018 was that Democrats won their biggest victory since the Watergate election of 1974. And they won it not by winning extra seats in the Bay Area and Brooklyn. They have all of those already. They won it by flipping seats in traditionally historically Republican-held areas. So Arizona is, is, is moving away from being red, for yeah, example. Let me just give you a good, yeah, like seat by seat. The, the seventh district in Texas, this is in the um, River Oak, Oak section of Houston. That George H.W. Bush, the 41st president, won that seat in 1966. And it stayed Republican through Watergate, through Iran-Contra, through the Iraq War, through the world financial crisis. It went Democratic in 2018. Newt Gingrich's former seat, Georgia 6th, um, it he wanted Gingrich wanted it in seventy eight. It stayed Republican until two thousand eighteen. It went Democratic. Um, Eric Cantor. He was the number two Republican in the House of Representatives under President Obama. He represents a, an area just west and north of Richmond. His seat. Uh, went Democrat. The area south of the Potomac River here in Washington, around the CIA, 
stretching to the Tyson's Corner shopping mall, if, if you know the D.C. area. That area has been Republican for 60 of the past 66 years, and it went Democratic in 2018. And in all these cases, um, the seats were won, not because of some surge of progressive activism, but because a lot of Republican-leaning people, especially women, said, I've had enough and I want a more reasonable representation. By the way, in every case, the winner was a woman. On the other hand, uh, people who were very critical of Trump before the election, people like Lindsey Graham and, uh, and uh, Ted Cruz, uh, you note in your book that in 2016, uh, Ted Cruz said, history isn't kind to the man who holds Mussolini's jacket. And he compared Trump to Mussolini. And then you say, he went to work in Mussolini's cloakroom. So what happened with those people? Um, what happened was a kind of moral collapse inside the Republican Party, I'm sorry to say. Uh, and the arguments that Donald Trump used that you quoted about the Second Amendment and the judges, um, he it, it was a scheme in the short term that seemed to work. And politicians often live in the short term. Uh, and uh, it they couldn't see it. You know, this is not going to pay off. One of the things I often say to um, my friends who are sort of in more Trump space, so imagine that Hillary Clinton had won the 2016 election. Where would you be, you personally? So Hillary Clinton wins in 2016. There would still be a Republican House and a uh, Republican Senate. So she wouldn't have been able to do that much. Uh, Republicans would have still had their ascendancy at the state and local level. Uh, so that would also be a check. Uh, she'd be president, but it would be the third consecutive Democratic presidential term. And that's a lot. Uh, third terms do tend to run into difficulty, you know, the inherent difficulties of managing a coalition. She would have had trouble on her left. And probably her government would have, her administration would have stumbled into trouble of some kind or other. And Republicans would have won in 2020. And everything you got in 2016, you would have gotten in 2020 only legitimately. Um, you would have actually won a, a real majority, not been tipped into office by the FBI and the Russians in the face of a popular vote defeat. And and you would have had a proper president, somebody who could do the job. You gained very little from the, from this win in 2016, and you're going to pay for it through the 2020s. One way, one very practical way Republicans are going to pay for it, 2020 is not only an election year, it's also a census year. And if Democrats do well down the ballot in, in 2020, that means they have a lot of opportunity to do redistricting in 2021. Haven't college graduates and suburbanites been leaving the Republican Party as it's focused more on a rural and white working class base? That, that you're exactly right. That has tended to happen. Um, and uh, that, that's been driven partly because of the expansion of the number of people who go to college and especially the expansion of the number of women who go to college. But that evolution, Donald Trump turned it into a revolution, into a stampede. Well, he, uh, he, he's now losing a, a major part of his base, elderly voters, and it's argued that's because of his handling of the pandemic. Um, yeah, I, and, and I think the number of talkers who are willing to say that the loss of a certain number of elderly voters is a price we're willing to pay uh, to revive the economy. I think it's also true that Joe Biden is, you know, for all his there are issues with him, but he's a profoundly reassuring and familiar figure that... Uh, you, it's pretty hard to make Joe Biden seem like some scary agent of un, um, unpredictable change. And you, every he's been around for half a century. We all know who he is. We all know what he can do and what he can't do. Uh, we all know his strengths and his limits. Um, and we're, we're used to him. He, it's hard to make him out to be something, you know, it, it's hard to make him something exciting, but it's also hard to make him something scary. He's also, also much more likely to depend on 
uh, experts. Uh, the, the, the people the president has surrounded himself with are often scary or, or inexperienced. But yeah. he, he, and you write about the president's relentless bullying of individuals, groups, and countries, his poorly conceived foreign policy via Twitter, his threats to unleash his followers on what he sees as a, a disloyal electorate, and about all the harm that he's done to American judicial and security agencies. But he couldn't have achieved some of those things without the support of uh, some key figures of Congress. So there's a whole bunch of them, but uh, the, 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 probably the most prominent are Mitch McConnell and, and Lindsey Graham. Uh, and, and many of them, as I said earlier, criticized Trump before he became the Republican nominee. And now uh, they are almost in lockstep with him. Yeah. Well, Is it because be they're better. afraid that they're going to lose the votes of Trump supporters if they don't support him? Um, and uh, it, Republicans have also built a kind of um, information system that trap that both supports them, but it also victimizes them. I mean, sometimes people imagine that um, the Republicans like Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz, they know it's on Fox News, but of course they know better. And it's, to some degree they do, but they're also trapped that when you create a propaganda system like Fox that um, feeds your supporters a bunch of unreliable narratives, even if you know that the narratives are unreliable, you can't act on that knowledge because you're boxed in. You've told everybody that uh, – the, the, there's massive voting intimidation by the new Black Panthers who are stalking voting precincts in the cities and arriving with weapons and um, intimidating people. And that's why you're having trouble in Black America is because of the, the threat from the new and, and you may know that's nonsense. But if you persuade enough people that that's true, how do you act on your knowledge that that is nonsense? Well, you would think under those circumstances he would support absentee balloting, but he's threatened Michigan and Nevada over that. And that led him into a war with his favorite form of communication, Twitter. Uh, uh, Twitter, I don't know whether Twitter went after him after he retweeted a supporter's comment that the only good Democrat is a dead Democrat. Well, I think um, uh, tr Trump has presented Twitter with um, a lot of problems for a long time. I think the Joe Scarborough tweet may actually yes. have been the thing that really, really presented Twitter with a, a dilemma. And here, this is a slightly complicated legal problem. But if you were to tweet or I were to tweet an accusation against an innocent person they were involved in a, in a murder, we would face a lawsuit for defamation. And, and it could be quite expensive for us. The president enjoys a very large immunity against defamation actions. And uh, it, because the, the president will say all kinds of things in the course of doing the president's duties. You know, if the president, you know, president goes on TV and says, uh, we have information to suggest that, you know, the XYZ terrorist group in such and such, XYZ group in such and such a country is implicated in an act of terrorism. You know, we don't need to have that, that group filing a claim in the U.S. courts for defamation and suing the president, right? Because you're presuming, you know, he's got the intelligence data, he gets to say it. So the president has a large immunity for defamation. But when Donald Trump tweets, from his personal email account, things that have nothing to do with his presidential duties, but are, and are clearly defamatory. Uh, he, he creates this, this problem. What do we do about that? I mean, as I said, you were to do it, I were to do it, we'd be sued. If he, he wouldn't tweet it from the POTUS or White House account, because those accounts are overseen by multiple people, um, and they're bound by a set of laws, like the Presidential Records Act. He can't delete, for example, anything on the POTUS or White House accounts. 
The real Donald Trump account op is in this limbo where it's it's a personal account that the president uses to communicate and that he often types himself. Mm. And is that personal? As we know public? from the misspellings. As we know from the misspellings. Somebody and, and said he's dyslexic. One of a former assistant said he's dyslexic, and that probably explains a lot of those things. He's got so many, yeah, processing mm -hmm. problems, to put it mildly. So, uh, so the Twitter people think, my God, they just used our platform to accuse an innocent person of murder. You know, now, that, are is, we, is that why we went into business? No. Are we at a, a crisis for democracy? You quote Peter Thiel, the, the co-founder of PayPal and, and, a, and a Kushner family partner who was an early Trump supporter, is saying that he sees democracy as being at odds with his libertarian ideals. And he's written that he, quote, no longer believes that freedom and democracy are compatible. And among the problems, as he sees it, is the extension of the franchise to women. He also says the welfare state has rendered the notion of capitalist democracy into an oxymoron. So um, are we really moving in, in that kind of direction? Or is this just some of the crazies are coming out of the woodworks? I mean, Peter Thiel is a pretty powerful figure. He's one of the richest men in America. Right. And spoke at the uh, uh, Republican convention in 2016. Look, America has always had a complex relationship with democracy. Um, it was not founded as a democracy. It evolved slowly into something like one. And and, but it's always been contested and there's been a lot of uh, going to and fro. Uh, sometimes the ex franchise is widened. Sometimes it's narrowed. Sometimes we make it easier for people to vote. Sometimes we make it harder. And since 2010, we've been in a period where uh, voting has become more difficult for more and more people. What is new in the Trump years is in the past, you know, uh, parties that where parties of property have often had an interest in making it somewhat more difficult to vote, but they seldom explicitly said, that's what we're doing. They would explain that they were trying to protect the purity of the ballot or defeat fraud. Um, it, you wouldn't come right out and say, we're trying to make it hard, harder for people to vote. But since 2016, uh, pro-Trump Republicans have been coming out and saying just that. It's become a sayable thing. And the result is that democracy, always contested in the United States, is now being contested even more vehemently than it has been in the past. Now, we have just a couple of minutes left. You quote the late Senator Dan Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who said that it is culture, not politics, that determines the success of a society. How does that apply to the current situation? This is one of um, the full uh, observations, one of Moynihan's most brilliant and most poignant. Um, he said, "Is this, um, the central conservative truth is that culture shapes politics. And the central liberal truth is that politics can shape culture. Uh, and it's uh, a dynamic contest. So uh, we are bound by our, um, we are bound by our culture. I mean, uh, a very practical example, Americans have a culture that is uh, more positive toward guns than that of other countries, including my native Canada. It's also true that American gun law has become much more permissive over the past decade, and that has enabled the spread of guns, and that that law could change in other directions. And if you change the law, you would change the culture back. Uh, and so uh, the art of governing a great society is both limiting what law can do, because, or understanding the limits on what law can do, because you're bound by culture, but also understanding the possibilities, because changes in law can make can make changes in culture. We have seen that in so so many areas. You know, uh, Donald Trump 
fired one of his most competent people, his uh, staff secretary, because the staff secretary um, was credibly alleged to have twice brutalized women he lived with. And I think in one case, a woman he was married to. Uh, the first person, the first civilian ever fired for um, domestic brutality was fired in 19, in the middle 1980s until about 1985. Uh, if a partner beat a partner, typically, if a man beat his wife or his his partner, uh, that was regarded as a, not desirable, but a personal business. Um, and we began to change the law, and we really changed the way we thought. The first time somebody was fired, and it was during the Reagan administration, was fired for domestic battery. People really debated, you know, what? Really? You're going to do next thing you'll be firing him for, you know, ha having too much to drink. Uh, that, that That's a, what a man does after hours. That's not his job. Um, and the law changed and the attitudes changed. And now people think it's completely natural that you can't have this position if you um, have engaged in domestic violence. We can do other examples of that too. And I talk about this through through the pages of Trumpocalypse. And I thank you for being on our show. Um, remind people that he says, his, David Frum says his goal is to protect the American constitutional system from Trump and after Trump. His book, Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy, published by Harper's. It's been a great pleasure talking with you today. Okay, thank you so much. I really appreciated it. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and, and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. Before I sign off today, um, I feel like I really should take just a few moments to ask you for your support for the station. We've been hit hard financially by the pandemic. So if you care about London Lopez at large and all of the great programs on WBAI, we need you to help keep them alive, keep this whole thing alive. We really need your support because we depend totally on our listeners for our support. And, so, and if you become a, a BAI buddy right now by making a monthly contribution of $10 or more in the name of this show, 10, 15, 20, whatever you, is comfortable for you, you can join me for a special teleconference event that we're calling My Dinner with Leonard. So, so please go to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number two, WBAI.org. Or call 516-620-3602 right now to show your support for the unique in-depth content that we bring you on this show. Uh, and be sure to make that contribution in the name of London's Low Pit at Large. And from all of us at the station, thank you. We're off tomorrow, but we hope you can join us again on Wednesday when I'll be talking to economist Jeffrey Sachs about his book, The Ages of Globalization, Geography, Technology, and Institutions. We'll see you then.